Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. We're also very blessed to have Laura with us. She's representing the Shrine today. They always send a representative with us, and she's a good friend of the Institute, so we're very blessed to have her here with us. As we go through the mysteries of the Rosary as they're depicted in the apps, Remember, we are looking into the mysteries of the life of Christ. And every time we look into a mystery, every time we meditate upon a mystery of the rosary, we are looking into the life of God Himself, and that life is eternal. And so there are no perfect answers. There are no answers which are going to explain everything you want to know. And that's why meditating upon these mysteries is very valuable. Meditating upon every mystery, every scene of the life of Christ is valuable and always meditating upon it through the eyes of the Virgin Mary, which is the purpose of the rosary, by the way. Not just to be repeating the same words over and over again, but to be able to stand there and see from her unique perspective what God has prepared. And so we have an opportunity to look at these mysteries, and I'm not going to give you every answer. Those answers are for you to discover throughout your life of prayer. And so we'll have an opportunity to maybe to scratch the surface a little, to maybe say, wow, I never thought about it that way. But there are as many different ways to look at these mysteries as there are people on the earth. And so I encourage you, if you say, well, that's interesting, I want to learn a little bit more about that, first of all, to be going home and to be studying these things. So these are always opportunities for us to dig a little deeper, to be studying these mysteries, and to be considering What other way could we see this taking place? What other insight can we gain? What other Old Testament story might help us to understand these things? I encourage you in that. If you find that you're frustrated sometimes when you're praying the rosary, first of all, we've got to slow down. Repetition is always good. It's been a practice of the church. It was a practice of the Jews. But a repetition which does not lead into a deeper understanding of the mystery is not good. So we always seek to understand a deeper understanding of the faith. Always. So I encourage you to slow down. Second of all, when you're praying your rosary, if you find yourself at the end, how many of you have prayed a 20-minute rosary and got at the end and said, oh, kind of it was drudgery again. Come on, admit it. Sometimes that happens. Okay? Sometimes that happens. First of all, a couple of recommendations, a couple of steps that might be helpful. Get out your Bible. Read the New Testament story itself as a beginning, reminding yourself of what was taking place and the characters, the people involved. And then you'll be able to grow in your understanding of what was taking place, the historical context, and so forth. So if you find yourself, I pray the rosary every single day, but I sure wish I got more out of it. Slow down. Maybe you tackle one mystery that day. One mystery. And you open up your Bible and you read the text and consider exactly what's taking place. Also, always seeking to understand 
these mysteries of the life of Christ from the vantage point of the mother of God. There's no one who knows a son like his mother. And so the church has always said, what better way to understand the truths of our faith, the truths of the mystery of the life of Christ, but from the eyes, through the eyes of the mother of God. What it was like for her to be there as our Lord healed the blind man or the paralytic. To hear the leaders of the Jews scoffing at him. What was it like to see him being taken to his crucifixion? What was it like to hear the words of the angel? By tradition, it was Mary who was first told about the resurrection. What those words must have been like to her. Today, we're going to be not only looking at the New Testament story, but as I've said in the apps, as you'll see, underneath each of those mysteries is the icon of one of the mysteries of the Old Testament the type or the shadow of what took place in the New Testament. I want to read you a little quotation from the Catechism, which I think might be helpful about what all this thing, typology, what's it all about? The church, as early as apostolic times and then constantly in her tradition, has illuminated the unity of the divine plan in the New Testaments through typology, which discerns in God's works of the Old Covenant prefigurations of what he accomplished in the fullness of time in the person of his incarnate word. Christians, therefore, read the Old Testament in the light of Christ crucified and risen. Christians read the Old Testament in light of Christ crucified and risen. And why do we do that? Why do we read stories of things that took place thousands of years ago in light of what Christ did? The answer is simple. Because Jesus is God. And whatever Jesus does, He does as God. And therefore, takes up into Himself our humanity. He takes up into Himself our history. He takes into Himself the entire created order and transforms it in Himself. All things of the Old Testament point to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we need to begin again to read those stories in light of the mystery of our Lord. Christians, therefore, read the Old Testament in light of Christ crucified and risen. Such typological reading discloses the inexhaustible content of the Old Testament. But we must not forget, and this is absolutely crucial as we go through the time today, the Old Testament retains its own intrinsic value as revelation reaffirmed by our Lord Himself. The Old Testament retains its own value. I want you to open to the Gospel of Matthew very quickly. The Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Actually, let's go back one verse. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. By the prophet. What prophet? How many of you knew that? The prophet Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear... What's Isaiah the prophet talking about? Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Who? Jesus. And who's the virgin? Mary. Mary. I should say, yes. 
But no. Isaiah was prophesying, as we will look when we're over at, at the mystery, was prophesying before the king Ahaz. And he was prophesying about Ahaz's son who would be born. Ahaz was a very evil king. He did not believe in God. And he would not trust in the Lord. Ahaz was being attacked by the Syrians okay, in the north. They had come into, into a covenant with the northern tribes who had broken off of Judah. And they had come to Jerusalem to attack it. And Ahaz is tearing as here. He says, we're going to be conquered by the north. And Isaiah goes to him and says, you will not. For within your lifetime, the north will be shattered. It will be destroyed. And Isaiah says, ask. Ask the Lord and he will give you a sign. And Ahaz says, I will not. I will not tempt the Lord my God. Ahaz didn't even believe in Yahweh. He was playing with Isaiah, if you will. He was rejecting God. And Isaiah prophesies this prophecy that within his lifetime, from a virgin, from a young woman, a child would be born, a king of Israel, who would rise up and restore the kingdom exactly as Hezekiah did. I love the story of Hezekiah because... Ahaz is, is in Jerusalem. He's being attacked by the Syrians and by the northern tribes of Israel. A very small army. And he has no faith. But Hezekiah had faith. And Hezekiah was attacked later on by the Assyrians. A much larger, I mean it was like a world-sized army, marched on Jerusalem. And he stood toe-to-toe with them. He tunneled underneath Jerusalem to withdraw the water from the army. There was a spring of Gihon coming out of Jerusalem that the army outside of the gates was using. He tunneled, and we're going to go there. I'm going to be going there on Monday and take a group down into this tunnel to see that fresh water that they tunneled. And you can see the pickaxes where they struck the rock to take the water from the army of the Assyrians. And the the army was dispersed. Hezekiah stood against them. Hezekiah was a type of Christ who would come, who would give living water to his people, who would restore the kingdom. But unless we understand that history, and I should say before that, before you understand the history, is simply to say, I am not willing to simply apply the prophecy to Christ himself before understanding the historical context in which the type took place. And if we don't understand that Old Testament historical context, we'll never understand why the evangelist Matthew used that text to tell his people what was taking place. Okay? But we read it completely out of context. And what does it mean? Okay, yes, it tells us that Mary was a virgin and that she would bear the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. And we keep reading This text was meant for the people to read and an entire story explode in their mind to tell them exactly what Christ was going to do. So first of all, to stop. When you read a prophecy of the Old Testament, to go back and learn the context of that prophecy so that you can better understand what Jesus is about to do for His people and for us to give us living water. The problem we face, and this has very much to do with what I was just saying, is that we see Jesus as a band-aid. 
as a late answer, the incarnation. We're gonna, God finally decides to solve the problem. Instead of seeing the life of Christ within the context of salvation history and in the context of the revelation of what God wants, not only for you, but what He wanted for Adam and Eve and what He wanted for Noah and what He wanted for Moses and the Israelites, what He wanted for Hezekiah, what He wanted for the Israelites in the Babylonian exile. It is the same mystery which is revealed to us in the new that we read about in the old. The same mystery which is revealed to us in the new we read about in the old. The Catechism goes on to say, besides the New Testament has to be read in light of the Old. Early Christian catechesis made constant use of the Old Testament. As an old saying put it, the New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old Testament is unveiled in the New. How oftentimes we open up our Bibles and we open them up to the New Testament without first opening up the Old Testament. We, it's like reading the last chapter in a novel or in a book. You might get all the concluding stuff, but you're not going to understand the whole story that went into it. Your understanding is going to be very weak. And I would say that the majority of people that leave the Catholic Church leave for that reason. Because they don't see the fullness of why Christ came. They say, yes, He is the Savior of the world, but why is He the Savior? What problem has He solved? They don't understand the problem of the fall. They don't understand the problem of the exile of the Israelites and slavery in Egypt. They don't understand the problem of the Babylonian exile. And so they read Christ as kind of like Johnny come lately. God decides to finally solve the problem. He could have done it another way. But they don't see the unity of God's plan from the old to the new. I'll read you a quotation real quick from Cardinal Jean Danielou that I think might bring this a little clearer for you. He says, this symbolism, the symbolism of looking to the Old Testament to understand the revelation of the New, this symbolism is not subject to the whims of each interpreter. It constitutes a common tradition going back to the apostolic age. It is then the meaning of this and origin of this biblical symbolism that we must first make clear. That the realities of the Old Testament are figures of those of the New is one of the principles of biblical theology. This science of similitudes between the two Testaments is called typology. He then goes on to talk about the sacraments in the church. And this is what he says. The sacraments carry on in our midst the memory, the great works of God in the Old Testament and the New. For example, and this is, this is essential, the flood, the passion, and baptism. He's here speaking the sacrament of baptism. Show us the same divine activity as carried out in three different eras of sacred history. The same divine activity. And these three phases of God's action are all ordered to the judgment at the end of time. What does he mean? The same divine activity. What do you think? What's he talking about? The flood, the passion, and the sacrament of baptism carry on this exact same divine activity. What is he talking about? He's talking about the central mystery of our faith. That God desires to share His life with us. Every story of the Old Testament and the New, 
every action of God within history is a revelation of the one action of God. The pouring forth of His life to us. His desire to share His life with us. All the differences in the story are simply man stepping away or coming back to that mystery. God stands knocking at the door. It's our job then to discover in the Old Testament and in the New Testament to discover, to dig, to find that divine activity as revealed in the life of Noah, as revealed in the life of Moses, as revealed in the life of Christ, as revealed in the sacrament of baptism. I say this is important because as we look at these Old Testament types, you might say, well, okay, there's a coincidence there. Not at all. The reason why the story of Hezekiah looks like the story of Jesus Christ is because it is the same divine activity taking place. Revealed in all its fullness in Christ Himself. And ultimately in the sacraments. The same divine activity. So, as we look at these Old Testament types, you might say, well, I never thought about that particular one. And you know, the artist chose this particular Old Testament story, that particular Old Testament story to reveal to us that divine plan, the mystery of that divine plan. Is it the only mystery of the Old Testament which points to that revelation of the new? Not at all. And that's why I encourage you, first of all, if these mysteries of the Old Testament say, well, I never saw that connection before, or I don't know that Old Testament story, number one, get out your Bibles and learn it. Study it so that you know it. That's number one. But also, think about what other stories of the Old Testament reveal to you something of the new. I'll give you an example, and then we're going to go take a look at the mosaics. It is a common tradition to see as a type of baptism the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. In fact, St. Paul tells us That we are baptized just like Israel was. And he says, baptized into Moses. Plunged into Moses in the Red Sea. What's he talking about? Can you imagine what it must have been like to stand on the edge of the Red Sea? To have the entire army of the Egyptians, a massive army, marching down upon you. And what do you have to do? You have to cross a sea. And for Moses, your leader, to raise his staff and cut it in half and separate those waters. What faith it must have taken for the people to follow Moses into their certain death. And they followed. They followed. If you want to know what kind of faith we're to have in the sacrament of baptism, go understand the faith it must have taken for Moses and the Israelites to take that step into the depths of the sea, with walls of water raised on both sides of them, and to walk through in faith and to be saved by the power of God. To have undergone a death to their own self, to their own desires, and to place themselves fully within the trust of God. Similarly, as we look at these Old Testament types, we'll learn something about, I hope, not just something that happened 5,000, 10,000 years ago, but something about our own life. About how we're to understand these mysteries in our life and how they apply. And then, I think, as you're meditating upon these mysteries in your daily life, they'll come alive. 
They'll have meaning. They'll give you an answer of how we're to go out into the world and act. As Hannah did in the Old Testament, or Hezekiah did in the Old Testament, as they point to the revelation of Christ and how we're to live our life. Okay? We're going to go up to the front of the church. We're going to cut across before the altar rail, and we'll go up the other side. So here's what we're going to do. A little bit different than we normally do at the Institute is we're going to identify the New Testament mystery, identify the Old Testament mystery, and on some of them, I'm not, we're just going to identify and we'll keep going. On others, I might say a few words just to kind of hopefully indicate to you in which direction your study could take. If you're taking notes, just write down a couple things to jog your memory. And I encourage you, go back to those Old Testament texts. Read the context of those stories. And then meditate upon how those mysteries then can apply to the life of Christ and then to our own life. And so we have the first joyful mystery, which is the Annunciation. And the artist depicts the Old Testament type as? Yeah, the burning bush, the announcement to Moses in the burning bush. So what is the type? What's the artist trying to point to in the Old Testament story that tells us something about the New Testament revelation? Okay, the the Holy Spirit. Yes, the gift of the Holy Spirit coming down upon Mary and also the gift of the Holy Spirit given to Moses. Yes? What else? Yes? Oh, God speaking to man, revealing His Word. Right? God speaks through the angel to Mary and through the burning bush to Moses. This is extremely important. And I want to begin our entire tour by saying this very clearly. God desires to share His life with mankind through the created order. This is of fundamental importance. He desires to save us, but He desires to save us by allowing His creation to participate in who He is. And of course, the height of his creation is the creation of man. He desires to save us through the intercession or as a conduit through other human beings. God spoke to Moses, and yes, he could have appeared to Moses in, say, nothingness, right? Just a voice. But he didn't do that. He appeared to Moses in a burning bush. What was a common bush in the desert? became the conduit for God's Word. Similarly, the angel became a conduit for God's revelation to the mother of God. But there's another parallel here, say a cross parallel. Oftentimes, in the, in the church fathers, the mother of God is depicted in terms of the burning bush itself. Because from the burning bush came forth God's will for man to Moses. From Mary comes forth the word of God, Jesus Christ, for the salvation of mankind. And notice, when that word comes to Moses, it is for the sake of saving the people from slavery in Egypt. And when that word comes forth from Mary, it saves us from slavery to sin. All right, there's much more we could say about that, but we have 15, I hope you guys have mercy on me because we have 15 Bible studies I have to keep in my mind. So we're going to go from one to one very quickly, and we'll be seeing each one of these types, jot them down, and when you go home, you slow down and look at these mysteries in the Old Testament. Go and open your Bibles and read about them. Of course, the story of the burning bush is in what book of the Old Testament? In Exodus. In Exodus.
Okay? All right, the next mystery. Okay, the story of the New Testament, the visitation, right, as Mary comes to the home of Elizabeth. And the Old Testament type is a little bit more difficult. You guys can come in. I'm not going to say any more, except we're going to have a, we're going to have a group. I'm going to make you do a group hug if you guys don't stop this. <laughs> come up close. Come up close so that you can see. The Old Testament type is a little bit more obscure. Okay, if you have your Bibles, open to 2 Samuel chapter 6. While you're looking that up, I'll give you a little bit of the context. King David wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant from the tent where it was dwelling off in the hill country of Judea, and he wanted to take it to Jerusalem, to its dwelling place. He wanted to build the temple. And so he places the Ark of the Covenant upon a cart. Not supposed to do that. The Ark was to be carried by men. He places it upon a cart and he starts dancing in front of it and starts bringing it in glory into Jerusalem through the hill country of Judea. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, the hill country really is the hill country. It's just hills, beautiful rolling hills outside of Jerusalem. It was probably about 10 miles outside of Jerusalem. He's taking it there on a cart and the cart stumbles into a little ditch and the ark begins to fall off the cart. And Uzzah was standing, he was not a priest, he was standing, walking next to the ark. And Uzzah stretches out his hands to save the ark from falling. And he dies. He was not a priest. He was not one that was to touch the holy things. And so he's struck dead on the spot. It should tell us a little bit about being careful about approaching the holy things, okay? Now, you all found the text. First of all, it's being taken in the hill country. Where does Mary go to visit Elizabeth? In the hill country, right? And we'll start with verse 6. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark and took hold of it, and the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there, because he put forth his hand to the ark, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken forth upon Uzzah, and that place was called Perez Uzzah and to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? Where do we remember those words? How can the mother of my Lord come to me? Elizabeth was quoting 2 Samuel. She was quoting King David. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obedidon, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Abedon the Gittite three months. How long did Mary stay with Elizabeth? Three months. And the Lord blessed Obedidom and all of his household. When a household is blessed, my friends, in biblical language, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. When a household is blessed, the household becomes fruitful. When Mary approaches Elizabeth, do you remember what happened in her womb? Yeah, and don't just think he just happened to jump. No, he was enlivened. They didn't have science back then to say that it was alive before that. No, she felt for the first time life come into her womb. She became fruitful as the ark of God came to her. And we call, I didn't say that before, we call Mary the ark. Why? Because the ark of the covenant in the Old Testament held the things of God. But Mary holds God. God herself. 
the fathers of the church tell us that John the Baptist, when he left in the womb of Elizabeth, was baptized because he professed faith in God who had come to him and was baptized in her womb. Isn't that beautiful? All right, let's go to the next mystery here. All right, now we're not going to spend very much time because I mentioned this in our introductory comments, but we have the mystery of the nativity of our Lord. And the Old Testament is depicted in the verse, the prophecy of the prophet Isaiah. And when did Isaiah live? When did Isaiah live? Just before the Babylonian exile. He was prophesying in the south. So you have Isaiah the prophet depicted as he comes to the king Ahaz. And if you say to me, Deacon Sabatino, I don't know the story of the Babylonian exile. I say to you, if you don't know the story of the Babylonian exile and the kings that came before that, if you don't know the story of Ahaz and the prophet Isaiah and what he prophesied, then I dare say that we don't really know and understand the gift of the nativity of our Lord. It's like a house built on an unsure foundation. Get that foundation solid and you'll be able to see the hand of God as it is revealed in the life of Christ. As he began to prepare for that revelation, not as a band-aid to solve a problem, not as Johnny come lately, but as the plan of God from the beginning. As I said, Isaiah goes to Ahaz and Ahaz refused to have faith in God. He was surrounded by the army of the Syrians. And Ahaz says, God will work for the salvation of Judah. For within a few years, that army which you will see will be nothing. The northern kingdoms will be destroyed. Why? Because the Assyrians are about to rise to power and the Assyrians will march upon the north and take them into exile. The Assyrians will then march south and surround Jerusalem. Imagine the largest army you can imagine surrounding the cities of the walls of uh, the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Not a big city, but Hezekiah had faith, and through Hezekiah, the kingdom of Judah was saved from the Assyrians. So I encourage you go back, read those texts. I think I wrote down for you. You can read Isaiah chapter seven. You can also read that I don't have the note here, but in Second Kings, the story of Ahaz and Hezekiah. All right, let's go to the next mystery. We're going to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Okay, the New Testament story is the story of? The presentation in the temple, right? To Simeon the just. The Old Testament mystery is? Does anyone know? Yeah, the story of Samuel being brought by his mother... Hannah to Eli, the judge. In those days, Eli was dwelling in a tent and he had the Ark of the Covenant with him. If you turn to 1 Samuel then, I just want to point out a couple of verses that I think you'll find very interesting. You remember the story of Hannah. She was barren. She had no opportunity to have children. Very much like the Virgin Mary had made her commitment to God. Through her, there was no hope of bringing the Messiah was a great sacrifice. Both prayed and were both given the gift. And you'll see, Hannah goes to the temple. She weeps before the judge, Eli. 
and God grants her prayer. And she makes a promise there, a commitment, that if God will grant her a son, that she will dedicate that child to the service of the Lord. And so sure enough, after bearing that son, she takes her son and gives him to the judge Eli to live in the tent of the Lord, to be there near the Ark of the Covenant. And when she approaches the temple, when she approaches the Ark, this is what Hannah says in chapter 2, verse 1. Hannah also prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. I go down a few verses. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. What does this sound like? The, ma- the mother of God was quoting Hannah. And she was applying the situation that Hannah faced to herself. And she was also applying the mystery of the giving of Samuel, the child, to the Lord, to her son. If you want to understand what is going on in the Gospel of Luke, you first have to go and understand what's taking place in the story of Samuel. Notice also in chapter 2, verse 26, Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. Does that sound like? Yeah, like Jesus. Exactly. There's another beautiful aspect to this story that you should recognize. It's later said that when Samuel, the boy, first hears the Word of God speaking to him, he is sleeping in the tent next to the ark. Okay, that's where his bed was. Can you imagine? He was sleeping there next, as close as he could get to the Lord, next to the Ark of the Covenant. Similarly, our Lord sleeps in the arms of Mary, who is the Ark of the Covenant, and hears the Word of God speaking to her. Okay, let's go to the next mystery. Okay, the New Testament story. The finding of the child Jesus in the temple. The Old Testament story? Daniel and Susanna. Yeah, Daniel and Susanna. Exactly, Daniel and Susanna. You can look in Daniel chapter 13, which tells the story. Very interesting story. If you remember, Susanna is the wife, the young wife of a very wealthy man during the Babylonian exile. In the household, there were two judges of Israel that were living, two young men who desired Susanna. And they found her alone one day in the garden, and they said to her, lie with us. And if you do not, we will turn you in and you will be put to death. And Susanna says, rather than sin, I accept death. And she gives herself into their hands. She remains sinless. Similarly, the mother of God refuses to sin. She remains sinless. But there's also the story of our Lord speaking in the temple. You remember, they were amazed because they said, no one has ever spoken like this. In those days, a prophet or a rabbi would always speak by referring to his master. So-and-so said, the rabbi so-and-so said, who was respected. That's how they taught. But when Jesus taught, it was not like that. Similarly, when Daniel stands up and defends Susanna, He doesn't refer to any rabbi. He says, the blood of this woman will not be on my hands. He was a young boy. Turn there very quick to Daniel chapter 13. Daniel successfully defends Susanna. 
And when he does this, he says something that is quoted in the Gospel of John, very closely anyways. And I'm looking, if you're writing it down, at Daniel chapter 13, verse 48. He says, taking his stand in the midst of them, he said, Are you such fools, you sons of Israel? Do you think our Lord was there in the temple speaking nice things to the priests? If we have any understanding of what took place the rest of his life, we can only imagine the kind of conversation that was taking place. Are you such fools, you sons of Israel? Have you condemned a daughter of Israel without examination and without learning the facts? Do we try a man without first learning from him the truth of what took place? Those are the words which came forth from Nicodemus when the Pharisees sent soldiers to arrest Christ. And he says, do we condemn without first a trial? And it's just after that story in the Gospel of John, which reveals to us that the Pharisees were seeking the death of Christ unjustly. They were seeking to murder him. It's in the Gospel of John chapter 8. The very next story after Nicodemus says that the Pharisees bring the woman, so-called caught in adultery, and puts her before Jesus and says, what should we do? Do we condemn someone, a woman of Israel, without first trying her? So there's a double parallel because in the Gospel of John, the story of the adulterous woman is more even so about Christ himself and about what they're about to do to him. And listen to the words of Susanna in chapter 13, verse 22. Susanna sighed deeply and says, I am hemmed in on every side. For if I do this thing, it is death for me. And if I do not, I shall not escape your hands. I choose not to do it and to fall into your hands rather than to sin in the sight of the Lord. When they brought the sinful woman to Jesus, they gave him a choice. Do we turn him in to the Romans? Or do we stone her? Do we put her to death as the law of Moses says? If he had said that she should be turned to the Romans, he would have broken the law of Moses and been proven not to be a prophet. If he had condemned her to death and participated in her stoning, he would have broken the law of the Romans, which did not allow them to put people to death. He was hemmed in on either side. But the justice of the Lord saw him through that. He wrote on the ground and was cleared, as Susanna was. Again, go back to the Old Testament study these mysteries, meditate upon them, and you'll begin to understand what's taking place in the gospel. Okay? We're going to go over to the other side, to the sorrowful mysteries, and then we'll come back to the center. You don't have to write this down, but the text that is being quoted here, see if there's any suffering like mine, is from the book of Lamentations. Is the Lamentations of the prophet Jeremiah, who we're going to see an, uh, an image of in a few minutes here the prophet Jeremiah, as he laments over Jerusalem and its desolation. The prophet Jeremiah lived through the Babylonian exile. He was arrested. He was taken into captivity. And on his way, he was released by the captain of the guard. And he returns to Jerusalem. And he looks over Jerusalem. And if you've ever stood on the Mount of Olives and looked over Jerusalem, you can imagine what it must have been like for him. The place which was the glory of the Lord was burning it had been completely sacked. Everything was in desolation. And he says, 
how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She that was great among the nations. She that was a princess among the cities has become a vassal. And he laments over the city. The story here, though, that you see depicted, besides the text of Lamentations of Jeremiah, is first of all the New Testament event. The agony in the garden. If you ever go to the Garden of Gethsemane, it overlooks Jerusalem. You can see Jerusalem over the Kidron Valley. And underneath, the story of... Good, the story of Adam and Eve. This is one of my favorite types that's depicted by this artist. It's one of the most, say, famous that the church fathers picked up on, saying everything that Christ did was a fulfillment of what Adam lost. He picks up the fall and restores us to the garden, to what we had lost. And so you see Adam and Eve being cast out of paradise, the cherub with the flaming sword, and the tree of life, guarding the way to the tree of life. I will read you a quotation from the Lenten Triodion, which is a liturgical book that is chanted during Lent in the Byzantine tradition. It says, Adam sat before paradise, and lamenting his nakedness, he wept. Woe is me! By evil deceit have I been persuaded and led astray. And now I am an exile from glory. Woe is me! What have I suffered in my misery? I transgressed one commandment of the Master, and now I am deprived of every blessing. The sun hid its face, the moon and stars were turned to blood, and the mountains were afraid and the hills trembled when paradise was shut. Adam departed, beating his hands upon his face and saying, I am fallen. Merciful Lord, have mercy on me. An image of Christ who goes then into the Garden of Gethsemane to prepare for His passion. Father James Groning says, How significant this choice was. In a garden, the first Adam was, had committed the first sin, the sin of disobedience. Therefore, it was in a garden that the second Adam should say to his father, Not what I will, but what thou wilt. In a garden, Adam by an abuse of liberty, had plunged the entire human race into the most shameful captivity. In a garden, therefore, by the bonds of Christ, our fetters were to be broken. In a garden, God had pronounced the death penalty upon Adam. Hence, in a garden, Christ would take upon Himself the judgment and this curse. In a garden, the human race was lost, and usually, an object is sought where it was lost. Christ intentionally goes into the garden to take upon Himself the curse of Adam. And notice also the tree of life, which was the reason for our exile. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever. As St. Ephraim says, if they had eaten from the tree of life in the fallen state, they would have eaten eternal death. They would have lived forever as though buried alive, separated from God. And so Adam and Eve are cast out of paradise so that what would become their salvation, access to the tree of life, would be turned. And Jesus could bring us back into that tree to receive that which we lost. On one side of the apse, the tree of life. On the other side of the apse, the tree of the cross, upon which hangs the fruit of life. Eat and you will live forever. Notice also the eagle 
in the picture. Most likely, I believe it's a reference to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. In the story of Isaiah, you have the first about 40 chapters all about the condemnation of Israel and the beginning of the Babylonian exile. But in chapter 40, the story of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah turns. And he says, comfort, comfort my people. That God will bring His people back to the Holy Land, to back to paradise, to restore to them that which they lost. Isaiah 40.31 reads, Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Be patient, Jerusalem. Be patient, Israel. Be patient, my people. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. There's a sense of hope that even though Christ is about to undergo His passion, ultimately, God will comfort His people. Okay, let's go to the next mystery. Okay, the New Testament reference? The scourging of the Lord. The Old Testament reference? The scourging of Jeremiah. Very good. There's a few people in here that have been reading their Bibles. As I was looking at this, I was immediately reminded of our Lord's condemnation. I was in the context of the woes in which He was giving in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken and desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jeremiah was prophesying the fall of Jerusalem. Jeremiah was living just before and during the Babylonian exiles, I said earlier. Remember I said it was Jeremiah who lamented Jerusalem as he looked over the city as it was burning. He prophesies the fall of Jerusalem, and then he leaves Jerusalem, and on his way out of Jerusalem, he's caught, and he's arrested, and he's accused of leaving the people of God to join with the enemy, to join with the Babylonians. Similarly, our Lord is accused of seeking to destroy the temple. Do you remember the Pharisees twisted our Lord's words? He's arrested, Jeremiah is. He's scourged, as our Lord is. He's thrown into a cistern, as our Lord was. Some of you that have been to Jerusalem have seen where our Lord was lowered down into a cistern and was in arrest there. And finally, both the kings, Zedekiah and Pilate, both release Jeremiah and our Lord to his, those who had arrested him and said to them, I wash my hands of this innocent man. He is yours. Do with him what you will. So again, go back and read that story of Jeremiah. That was Matthew. Yeah, Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Okay? Let's go. I said that was going to go quickly, so let's go. Uh-oh. That's okay. Come on close. Come on. Okay. Either the organ guy didn't like what I said or something. <laughs> or maybe he did like what I said. Okay. The reference here? 
the, crown, the crowning with thorns, and the Old Testament reference. This is probably, I must admit, the most obscure of all of the Old Testament references. Joe, do you know what it is? Not of Hezekiah, of King Joachim. In 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 12 through 13. Joachim is mentioned in the genealogy of our Lord, as is Ahaz, as is Hezekiah. You want to know a good Bible study that would help you out? Go take that genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew and go back and read about each one of those guys. Probably take you a month of study, but it'd be well worth your time so that you know the story. This is during the second exile. And why is this, re- this Old Testament reference put here? I believe probably because right at the end of 2 Kings, right at the end of 2 Kings, I'll read it to you. I'll give you the reference. 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 27. This is after the story of the exile, the taking into exile of the king and the taking of all of the things of the temple. He says, And in the 37th year of the exile of Joachim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, so he's 37 years he's been in exile, in prison, in Babylon. In the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Joachim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Joachim put off his prison garments. And every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. Even in the midst of the saddest event, in the midst of our Lord's passion, there's hope. That through death, through imprisonment and death, our Lord will come free and begin the restoration of the kingdom. There's another reference, though, I think I want to mention to you on the crowning of thorns. And I'll read you a quotation from St. Ephraim the Syrian. He says, Our Lord subdued his might, and they seized him, so that by his living death he might give life to Adam. He gave his hands to be pierced by nails in place of that hand that had plucked the fruit in the garden. He was struck on the cheek in the judgment hall in return for that mouth that had devoured, that had eaten the fruit in Eden. Because Adam had let slip his foot. You remember, Adam ran away from our Lord and hid in the garden. They pierced our Lord's feet. Our Lord was stripped naked so that we might be clothed in modesty. You remember, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. And the fathers tell us they wore the robe of glory, the grace of God. And when they sinned, they cast off that robe of grace and discovered their nakedness. God told them then to be clothed in animal skins to reflect who they had become. And so our Lord then is stripped of His clothing, stripping of the old man, stripping of sin, so that man could once again stand before the Lord and be restored in His image and likeness. Christ took upon Himself the crown of thorns. It was thorns that Adam and Eve had received as their curse. And so our Lord is crowned with the curse of Adam so that He may take our sufferings, the depth of our sin, and restore it in the resurrection. Okay? Let's go to the next mystery. Our Lord carrying the cross, the mystery of our Lord carrying His cross, and the Old Testament reference? Oh. 
Yeah, Isaac, right? Do you remember, you can turn there if you want to Genesis chapter 22. And I'll start reading a little bit and you can catch up if you're still looking. After these things, can you hear me, Denise? That's deadly, isn't it? You can't hear me, can you? No. Okay, look at chapter 22. You guys can get close, it's okay. I think he's playing with us. Okay. After these things, God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Where is the land of Moriah? Yeah, the land of Moriah is Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you can look if you write it down. 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. We read in verse... And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the ass. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come to... And and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, like Jesus who carries the cross. But notice something. We oftentimes depict that he carries the wood and we oftentimes depict Isaac as a young boy. But he lays the entire wood of the sacrifice upon his shoulders. He must have been a young man. And if you look at the age, the years that are given in Scripture, Abraham is an old man by this time. Isaac then is a young, strong man. He takes the wood of the sacrifice. And notice what is said. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am. Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Abraham was an old man and Isaac was a strong young man who carried the wood. Some of the fathers have said, Isaac then must have been a willing sacrifice for he was stronger than his father was. But when Abraham commanded him, his son obeyed. He took the wood, had himself willingly laid upon it. And just as Abraham is about to sacrifice his son, God stops him. And St. Ephraim says at that moment, the briar, the bush, came bursting forth out of the ground. And out of the bush came the ram, which then hung itself by its antlers upon the tree, like Christ. But notice, the ram which Abraham then takes and sacrifices is not a lamb. It's not a lamb that Abraham had prophesied. The Jews saw this very clearly and they waited for the day in which God would provide Himself the lamb on Mount Moriah. uh, Jerusalem, the Lord will provide His peace. The old name, the other name for Moriah was Salem. And it was here at this time the, the beginning, Yerushalem, was attached. The Lord will provide Salem, Shalom, His peace upon this land. And so you have depicted here the tree, an image again of the tree of life, an image of Christ, the ram, but also pointing then to the one, the lamb, who would be hung upon that tree and sacrificed. Okay, let's go to the next mystery. And the fifth sorrowful mystery is crucifixion. the crucifixion of our Lord. The reference is very clear. Christ then is that lamb which the Lord would provide. That's the Old Testament reference is the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb, 
don't forget, was not simply a lamb which they sacrificed, and that was the end of Feast of the Jews. No, it was for a purpose. The Passover was first of all a Passover from death to life. You remember, the Israelites sacrificed the lamb and took the blood of that lamb and placed it upon their doorpost as a sign. Huh? As a sign, they were marked with the blood of the lamb. As a sign to protect them from the angel of death. The lamb was then to be consumed. It was to be eaten to give them strength for their journey. The Passover from Egypt to Israel, from slavery to freedom, from domination of Pharaoh to beholding the face of God. And you remember when they came to Mount Sinai and they beheld the face of God, Moses was transfigured into his image and likeness image of what is going to take place with us. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. So Christ is our Passover lamb. Our Passover lamb who gives us his blood and we are marked with his blood so that the angel of death no longer has dominion over us. That we might eat of his flesh and through eating of his flesh be strengthened for our journey from darkness to light, from this world to the next. The Eucharist itself is a prefigurement. We talk about typology. It itself is a prefigurement of full communion with God in heaven where all of the shadow of all of the the type will wash away. No longer will we receive God under the form of bread. No longer will we taste like wine. But we will behold Him as He is. And of course, Christ hanging upon the cross as I said before, is the fruit of the tree of life. Okay, let's go into the, um, the center apps. You can turn your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 50 if you want. Okay, the New Testament event? The resurrection. The Old Testament event is a kind of a strange reference. You would expect this reference maybe to be in the Sorrowful Mysteries. Who is it? Joseph being sold into slavery into Egypt. Why would the artist at the moment of the resurrection refer to Joseph's suffering and slavery? Ah, oh, good, he's retrieved from the cistern, right? He goes down as our Lord goes down into death. And just when you think he's going to die, he's saved. Why else? Who sold him into slavery? Who desired his death? His brothers, just as our Lord had been turned in by Judas. What else? Remember, our Lord was sold for a few pieces of silver. Right? 30 pieces of silver. Joseph is sold for 20 pieces of silver. Slightly different amount, but still, the the reference is there. For a few pieces of silver, his life is betrayed. And notice, though, and this is why I think this depiction is quite beautiful here. Oh, I know. Yes. Good. What his brothers had intended as his death and his annihilation becomes for their own salvation. That God uses their sin takes it upon himself, undergoes the suffering which they had inflicted, and through that suffering, restores them to life. 
You remember, Joseph goes into Egypt. He ends up in jail. From, he, was a, he was in Potiphar's house. Do you remember? He's accused in Potiphar's house. And he goes into jail. And then he's taken into Pharaoh's court because he interprets the dream of Pharaoh. You remember, as the world begins to starve through the famine, Joseph wisely stores up wheat. And when his brothers come to him, he feeds them with bread to save their life. An image of the Eucharist. There's so many references to Joseph in the story. I recommend you go back and you read Joseph's story and say, every time there's anything about Joseph, what can I say about Christ? What can I learn about Christ? He's lifted up to become the al-bayit, the, the, uh, the person who's over the house of Pharaoh. In fact, it is said that in everything except the throne, Pharaoh made Joseph to be like him. So as he rides the chariots, people kneel down and so forth. He's given a new name in Egyptian, Zephaneth Paniah, which means in Egyptian, Savior of the world. And when Israel and his sons come to Egypt, and Israel finally dies at the end of Genesis in chapter 50, we'll just read the text in verse 18. His brothers come to him and they say, now that our fathers die, he's going to get vengeance on us. And they're afraid. And notice what Joseph says. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? In fact, if you read Joseph's story, it's as though Joseph is in the place of God. As for you, just think about Christ here. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The story of Joseph then prefigures the life of Christ and tells us about what Christ is going to do for us. And not a coincidence. God prepared on the natural order, Joseph feeding them with bread, for the full revelation of God's salvation when God feeds us with the Eucharist. It's not a coincidence. It's the plan of God from the beginning that he would feed us with the tree of life. That He would feed us in the created order and we would eat, and through eating we would live forever. Okay. Alright, the second glorious mystery. The ascension. And the Old Testament reference. Elijah being taken into heaven. And I say this very clearly, not so much for the group here today, as for those that will be listening online in the future. There are many people that visit our website that are not Catholics. There may be some people here today that are not Catholics. And I will tell you that if you have the problem with the assumption of Mary, you don't have a problem with the Catholic Church. You have a problem with Scripture. In fact, you have a problem with your understanding of salvation. Because God desires our life. He desires to share His life with us. And when He shares His life with us, He takes us to Himself. In fact, if you go back to the book of Genesis, you will hear of the first person being taken into heaven. Who was? Enoch. Enoch, in the book of Genesis. Taken into heaven. He was taken, and it says, for he was not. And the Jews believed, there's an actual apocryphal text called the Assumption of Enoch. Also, it was believed by the Jews that Moses was also taken into heaven after he died. You get a little glimpse of that in the epistle of Jude in the New Testament. That Michael the archangel and Satan battled over the body of Moses. 
And, of course, Elijah is taken into heaven bodily. He's assumed. Does this take away from the glory of God? No. God's glory is not a matter of him hoarding what is his. The beauty of God's gift is that he shares that with us. Elijah is taken into heaven, and you remember at the Mount of Transfiguration, who are the two people that appear? Elijah Elijah and Moses. Two people from the Old Testament that were believed to have been taken into heaven bodily. They appear bodily then at the transfiguration. But one other important point about the icon is that Christ in the ascension tells his apostles one last thing. He says, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Take what I have and take it out into the world. Elijah as he's taken into heaven, leaves his cloak to his disciple, Elisha. And it says, and gave him a double portion of his spirit. We see the same thing take place then after Pentecost as the apostles go out to preach the word. They raise from the dead. They heal people's infirmities. They forgive people's sins. Those are things which are known to God alone, to Christ alone. Okay? Let's go to the next mystery. New Testament. The descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, as I was just mentioning. And Moses receiving the law on Mount Sinai. Exactly. Exactly. Why is this reference here? Why? Why the story of Pentecost and the story of the giving of the law? Does anyone know? It's the same day. For the Jews, Pentecost was how many days after? 50 days after what? After Passover. Pentecost is 50 days after Easter, after the resurrection. The Jews commemorated 50 days after Passover. If you go to Exodus chapter 19, the coming of Israel to Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. That's what they commemorate on Pentecost. And so God gives us what the Old Testament pointed to. The new law. Now written not on stone, but on the heart. Jeremiah the prophet, chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, which I made with their fathers. When I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But... Notice that language. I was their husband. Israel is the bride, just as the church is the bride of Christ. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God. Let me be very clear. When the church makes law for us to follow, that law is a making clear a revelation of what is to be in our heart already. We don't attend Mass on Sunday because the church says we have to. We attend Mass on Sunday because we want to. The church says you have to for those that are about to fall off the body of Christ, for those that are living like the Jews were living without the law being put in their heart. Our law should be in our heart and our greatest desire should be for the Lord. 
The law of God in the Old Testament was His will for the people. Not a dictatorial law, but a, a law which is like, I oftentimes I speak to the youngsters, I say, the law of God is like your car manual. If you want to know how to make the thing run right, do it according to the manual. If you put gasoline in the oil spot, it's going to die. Not because the manufacturer hates you. It's just a reality of the way the thing is made. If we want to learn how to live a life of happiness, listen to what God tells us to do. Because He doesn't tell us to do it to make us suffer. He does it to make us happy. And if we're suffering under that law, we should ask ourselves what our life is really all about. Okay? Let's go to the next one. Okay, the New Testament mystery. The Assumption of Our Lady. Where do we learn, dear friends, about the Assumption? I didn't know that was in the Bible, Catholics. Isn't that something that's invented? Ah, the book of Revelation, chapter 12. Turn there very quickly. The book of Revelation, chapter 12. In fact, we're going to start in chapter 11, verse 19. Notice the way John's writing. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. And there were flashes of light, loud noises, peals of thunder, earthquake, and heavenly hail. Now stop. When you're reading the Bible, never let a chapter break stop you from reading because the chapter breaks are put in there later on by some monks. Later, 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 later. The original text did not read with that chapter break, nor the verse break. It read straight through. He saw the Ark of the Covenant. A great portent appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet. John sees, and he sees the Ark of the Covenant, and then he describes the Ark as a woman clothed with light, with the moon under her feet. We see Mary, who is the Ark of the Covenant, being taken into the house of God. And the Old Testament reference? David. Yeah, David dancing before the Ark as the Ark is being taken to Jerusalem to its final resting place in Jerusalem. But notice also a reference here that the artist places within the picture, the tree of life. Our Lady is the Ark of the Covenant. She bears God within her. Therefore, she's also the tree of life, for she bears God to the world, the fruit of life. All right, our final... Whew, we made it through. All right. I stopped short on our last text there in Revelation chapter 12, and I'll just keep reading. A great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. The mystery of the crowning of Our Lady in heaven. The Old Testament reference is... Very good, very good. Bathsheba, did you study your notes before you came, Henry? See, don't boo him because he kept his notes from three years ago. Exactly. Bathsheba being taken in the hand by? Oh, not King David. This is why it's a very important story. By Solomon, her son. And if you look at 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 17. Actually, we'll go back to verse 13. Then 
Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. Then he said, I have something to say to you. She said, Say it. He said, You know that the kingdom was mine, and that all of Israel fully expected me to reign. Okay, do you think that's a good guy? No, what he's doing is he's going to Bathsheba, he's trying to weasel his way in, okay? And then all of his respected for me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned out and become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. And now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And she said, say on. And he said, pray, ask. Notice the language. Pray. Ask King Solomon. That's old English, huh? Pray, could you get me some tea? Right? It's old English for asking someone to make a request. Would you mind doing this thing? When our Protestant brothers and sisters have a problem with praying to the saints, what are we doing? We're asking them to do nothing less to go to Jesus. Just as we ask our brothers and sisters on earth to go to Jesus to pray for us, we think no less of those that have gone to their eternal reward, those that have already made the journey, those that have proven themselves, those that are friends of God and sit at His table day in and day out in paradise. Pray, ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. And Bathsheba said, very well, I speak for, to the king. So Bathsheba went to the king Solomon to speak with him on behalf of Abishag, and the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. Okay? There was a, a role, an office in ancient Israel called the, the office of the queen mother. Why? Because they practiced polygamy. Okay? Because they practiced polygamy, the mother of the king would be the queen. Always. Okay? And so similarly, you see Solomon taking his mother, the queen Bathsheba, to his throne. And notice the words, and this is absolutely crucial, Catholics. Adonijah approaches Bathsheba and asks him for something. If you read the context, this guy's trying to overthrow the kingdom. And he comes, and oftentimes you'll hear apologists use that text to defend Mary as our intercessor. But in fact, Solomon refuses the request because he knows the nature of the request. Similarly, Mary is not magic. If the request is in line with the will of God, then yes, Mary's request to her son may be granted. And what better person to bring it to her son, as this guy knew, than his mother. But always the request must be in line with the will of God for our life. And if it is not, it will not be granted, even at the hands of the mother of God. In conclusion then, I want to say very clearly what I said at the beginning. These mysteries of the life of Christ are one. They are the revelation of God's love for us. And that love is a participatory love. He seeks to share His life with us to make us in His image and likeness so that the salvation of the world might come about in and through each one of us that we might participate in Christ's own salvific act when we honor the Blessed Virgin, when we come to the Mother of God, we do not go to her as an alternate way to God, 
apart from Christ. We go to her because she, more than any other, has been changed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ himself. As the Apostle Peter, standing on the day of Pentecost, went to the synagogue and there was the poor man that was begging for money and he says I have no money but I will give you what I do have in the name of Jesus Christ walk and that person walked because Peter had been given the gift of God himself he had been transformed in the divine nature like Adam and Eve in the beginning similarly Mary is an example an icon one who goes forth before us and is incorporated fully into her son. We come to her not as an alternate road, but we come to her because she is in our life, as each one of us is supposed to be, the revelation of Jesus Christ himself. Thank you all for, I'm sure your legs are tired and you're hungry, so God bless you and I hope to see you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.